Last week, we started our new series, Commissioned, where we will be taking six weeks and working through the Great Commission, given to us in Matthew 28, which is verses 18 to 20. Each week, we'll read these words of direction and purpose given to us by Christ just before he ascended back up into heaven. And then each Sunday, we'll take a look at different elements of this last instruction from our Lord. Last week, we looked at the authority of Jesus Christ as proclaimed in Matthew 28, 18, but made even more clear in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. For Christ has been put there by God at the right hand of the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The authority of Jesus is rock solid. May we remember that as we listen to what he has called us to do, the mission that he has called us to join him in. May the authority of Christ resonate within us as we recognize the rest of his instruction found in Matthew 28. So we're going to take a minute and, and read that instruction once again. So we'll be reading the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And then this week we'll be focusing on the second portion of the instruction that we have from the lips of our Savior to, to flesh out a little bit more for us, to flesh that out a little bit. We'll be moving our way or making our way to Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 18, and we're going to take a look at the story of Ananias. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to turn to Matthew 28 with me and then be prepared to flip to Acts 9. If you do not have your Bible with you but prefer something tangible to, to read from, there should be a Bible on the back of the pew in front of you. However, if you prefer, the words will be on the screens beside me. Let's read Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus said, came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission, the last words that we have in the entire book of Matthew. Now, before we turn to Acts chapter 9, I just want to give you a little context about what has taken place and what we're about to be reading. Jesus has risen, okay, and he's ascended. So Jesus is, he's gone at this point. The, ch the church is young, and it's growing rapidly, but still in a state of what we would consider vulnerability. Now, we know that God is not going to let his church die out, but it kind of felt like it might to the early church. They were being persecuted on all sides. The Romans didn't really like them, and the church didn't have the political power to garner any goodwill from Rome. But Rome wasn't the biggest threat to the early church. The biggest threat was from their own people. The Pharisees had felt like they had won, right? Jesus had been killed. But what they viewed as an ignorant cult of fanatics wasn't going away like they had expected it to. And what was worse, this group of crazies had become more and more successful at gaining converts from their own ranks. And so some of the Pharisees had turned to a rather destructive form of defending their faith. They'd come to the decision that they needed to wipe the church off the face of the earth. They would kill the Christians, arrest them, throw them in jail, and, and killing the faithful would cause those with doubt to give up and move on, and everyone could get back to waiting for the coming Messiah. One of the religious leaders who subscribed to this particular avenue forward was a man by the name of Saul. He'd already overseen the stoning of, of Christianity's first martyr, Stephen. And now he was on his way, sent by the chief priests in Jerusalem to the city of Damascus, that he might work towards snuffing out what he believed to be a cult that was growing rapidly in that particular city. 
Now the Christians in Damascus knew that this Saul was coming. His reputation went before him, and so they were preparing themselves for the hardships that lie ahead. What they didn't know was that Jesus met Saul on the Damascus road. They didn't know what was revealed to Saul during that interaction, and they didn't know the state that it had left Saul in. All they knew was that trouble was coming, and death was likely coming with him. And that's where we're going to pick up with our text this morning. Again, it's Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19. If you're able, I encourage you to stand for the reading of the word. We're also going to do something a little different today. All right? So I have, I have boldened and underlined some words in the text, and I invite you to read those words with me when we come to them. We read the word of the Lord this morning, Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be fulfilled with the Holy Spirit, or be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I know it's been a while for many of us, but who of us is familiar with the structure of a sentence? Like, what elements must a group of words strung together possess in order for it to be considered a sentence? Basic sentence structure consists of five different parts. The subject, the predicate, the object, the indirect object, and the complement. But that group can be broken down even more as the most basic parts of a sentence are subject and predicate. The subject is the noun doing the action, and the predicate is the action that the noun, the person, place, or thing, is doing. So we're going to go back to grade two, or second grade, sorry, that's my Canadian coming out, my, my second grade for, we're going back to second grade for a second, that was a bad sentence, and in the sentence, the man builds a house. So in the sentence, what's the subject? The man, right. And what's the predicate? Builds a house. Right, nice work. A's for everybody. Uh, with this in mind, do we know what the shortest sentence in the English language is? I wouldn't Google it. 
because Google's wrong. Can't trust everything that you read on the internet. But the shortest sentence in the English language is go. Now the action, the predicate there is, is pretty easy to pick out, right? It's the only word present. So where's the subject? Well, as my English teacher once taught me, hat tip to Mr. Unseth, the subject is implied. When a predicate is spoken or written to an individual, the subject is the hearer or the reader, and so we don't need to say, you go. We can just say, go. Not a word we always love to hear, right? I don't know if go is the shortest sentence in the Greek language, which is what Ananias spoke at the time, but I wonder how he felt receiving that imperative, that direction from God, when he didn't know how it was going to turn out. Like, before he actually went to the house of Judas on Straight Street, how do you think Ananias felt about this instruction that the Lord gave him? We can see it in his response, right? It's like, ah, uh, so God, I, I know you're all powerful and, and everything. I, I know you hung like the stars in their place and you, you set the boundaries of the sea. I know that you created every living thing and that you hold the whole world in your hands. Like, I... I get all of that, I, I acknowledge that, I confess all that is true, but just for the sake of a thought experiment here, do you realize who it is that you're sending me to? Do you know who this man is? Do you know what he has done? Do you know what he intends to do? Do you understand what will likely happen to me if I follow the prompting that you've been giving me? Do you get it? Like, like, do you know? And if you know, why in the world would you send him to me or send me to him? Don't, don't, don't you love me? Don't you care about me? What, what about my grandkids? Would you deprive them of your grandfather? Do, do you want me to live? What are you thinking? Why would you send me? And sitting here today, recognizing the situation as Ananias saw it, those seem like pretty pertinent, pretty relevant, pretty understandable questions, don't they? Do they feel pertinent and relevant because we know deep down that God is sending us as well, and, and though we may not be being sent to someone that is actively antagonistic towards us, though we might be, we still resonate with these questions because being sent is uncomfortable. We like it where we are, don't we? We we're happy just to be struggling in our own walk, in our own journey with the Lord. The, the idea of getting out and approaching someone else, of going to those to whom we have been sent is, I mean, that's scary. It's daunting. It's, it's a struggle. Doesn't God know that I've got enough on my plate already? Doesn't he understand that I've got a nine to five, that I've got to work so that I can put food on the table? He, he wants me to provide for my family, right? Like, that's in the Bible. How many demands is he going to make of me? Doesn't he realize how worn out I get in the daily struggle of survival? Maybe I'd have more energy if, uh, to, to be sent if he helped me, you know, get a raise. Or, or if he made it so that my kids behaved better and I spent less time arguing with them or moderating disagreements that they're having amongst themselves. If God wanted to help my spouse communicate a little better, like... Maybe have a little more empathy for where I'm coming from. Hey, maybe, maybe I'd have more time and more energy for the mission. Maybe if God threw a few bones my way, I'd be more inclined to join him. Maybe I'd be more likely to step into uncomfortable and stretching spaces. But dude, I'm tired. 
I'm going to grab me a bowl of ice cream or chips or some other snack that suits my fancy. I'm going to sit down and read a book or, or catch up on that show or just relax because I'm tired. I need me some me time. I mean, God tells us we need to rest, right? Like, that's a thing. So, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to rest instead of go and put myself in potentially awkward, possibly frustrating, but most definitely uncomfortable places. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? I can work myself up into an emotional tizzy coming up with all the reasons that I should be ignoring the Holy Spirit's missional push on my heart. I can come up with a list of justifiable frustrations and struggles. I can come up with a plethora of excuses for why I should be exempt from going to the uncomfortable and hard places that I can just tell the Holy Spirit is calling me to. And yet, beyond all of the noise that I make myself, there is a resonating pulse deep within my bones, like a heartbeat. And this pulse, this rhythm of my soul is one word. Go, 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 go. It's amazing how in some cases the shortest sentence in the English language is also the hardest, the heaviest, the most difficult. And yet how did Ananias respond? He recognized the authority of the God who sent him and he went. There's no promise that, that things would go well for him. God sent Stephen to this man as well. And as we talked about earlier, Stephen was the first one to be killed for his belief in Christ. There was no guarantee that things would go differently for Ananias. God doesn't make promises like that, right? Like our hope is secure. Our future is secure. But in this world, we will have trouble. That's a promise. That's in the Bible. Like we know it to be true. There is no promise of safety in the mission of God. But there is authority. And Ananias recognized the authority of God and made his way through the avenues of Damascus until he reached Straight Street. And there he went and he knocked on the door of the man whose name is Judas, that he might meet the greatest known opposition to his faith. How do we respond, church? Our Lord has told us, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. How are we doing with that? Calvary. Do we listen to the smallest sentence in the English language spoken by the highest authority in heaven and earth as it resonates in our hearts? Or do we try to make it insignificant in our lives? How have we responded? And how are we doing with that? Not as well as we would like to. And not as perfectly as God has called us to. And so how has God responded to the heaviness of our feet? How has he responded to us as we have clogged up our ears and chosen not to listen to the shortest sentence in the English language? How has the greatest authority ever established responded to the stubborn, selfish rebellion of the ones that he created? In response to the dragging of our feet and the unwillingness of our hearts, God sent us his one and only son. God sent us Jesus. And Jesus lived with us and taught us. He cared for us. He spent over 30 years with us. And still we struggled to understand and to respond properly to what he had to say. And in the stubbornness of our hearts and our desire to flush the uncomfortable from our lives, we turned on him. And so Jesus was betrayed. And he was sentenced to death, a death that had nothing to do that he did not deserve. He had done nothing to deserve. 
And as he walked the hill to Calvary, carrying the instrument of his death upon his shoulders, our Lord carried not just the lumber, but the sins of the world. Jesus took with him every time that you and I have ignored or explained away or made excuses for why we don't have to listen to the instructions of our God. Every time we have rebelled against his authority, Jesus took every time we think we know better. Every time we've been too lazy, every time we've been too scared, he took every time we've been too stubborn. He took every time we have said no to our God. Every sin that we have ever committed was put on Christ. And as the nails went through his hands and as he was lifted up, the Bible tells us that Jesus became sin for us. He became it. It no longer belongs to us. It has been taken and given to Jesus. And there on the cross, Jesus paid the price for all sin ever done by mankind. All sin past, present, and future was put upon him. And there on the cross, he died for it. In Isaiah 44, we read that the sins of the world were swept away like a cloud, like a mist in the morning. And in Jeremiah 31, as Fuzia read earlier this morning, we read that in the new covenant God makes with man, the covenant established by Christ, that God will forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. All because of Christ. For our Savior did not stay dead. Death cannot stop him. Sin has no power over him. Satan cowers before him for three days later. Jesus rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him and we trust in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, the promises of scripture are ours. Through faith, we live in the fruit of forgiveness. Through faith, the dirty rags of our sins have been taken from us and we have been clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. Through faith, we have been brought into the family of God and declared heirs with Christ. All of this through faith, not, not through works. This is what our Lord has sent us to tell the world, this message, that beyond the pain and struggle of life, there is hope eternal. But the only hope we have is in the blood of Christ. The only hope we have is in the promise of the Savior. And that message is hard. It tells people they aren't good enough. It communicates that we can't just believe whatever we want to believe, that being a good person won't get us there. Only the blood of Jesus Christ will. Jesus' work on the cross is the only thing that saves. And so we are compelled to proclaim this message to those who do not yet believe it. Go, says Jesus. And so church, we have been sent, which is fitting. Because someone was sent to us, right? Everybody had somebody sent to them. For many of us, it was our parents. For others, it might have been a friend. For others, a coworker. Maybe it was a, a pastor, a youth leader, or a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a coach or a teacher at school. Maybe it was a fireman, an electrician, or your plumber. Maybe you heard the gospel on the radio or through a song. Maybe you stumbled into church one day and you had never really heard about how you could never be good enough on your own, but that didn't stop God from loving you, and so he sent his son to die for you so that he might have the relationship with you that he created you to have with him. I don't know how you heard it, but you did. And God does. And now that you have been given the best gift that you could ever receive, You've been called to go and to make disciples. You've been called to go, church. God is the one who works through the message. He is the one who does the work in people's hearts. We never know. We never know how God's going to be at work. And Ananias sure didn't. He had no idea that by answering the call of the Lord, he would play a role in the faith journey of the greatest missionary to have ever lived. 
for Saul's name was soon changed to Paul, and though he had some bridges to mend with the early church, he became one of her greatest champions. And look at Ananias, man. Dude got the, the Great Commission, didn't he? He started Paul's journey of faith off properly with a baptism. And the Holy Spirit comes upon the soon-to-be apostle and evangelist. Who will you lead to Christ one day through listening to the prompting of our Lord? Through obeying his commandment to go? How will God and the church be blessed by your obedience in ways that we can only begin or we can't even begin to fathom? We all need forgiveness for the times that we have failed. We will continue to need that forgiveness for we will continue to fail in church. Christ's blood does not lose its effectiveness. There is forgiveness at the cross for our unwillingness to join Jesus in his mission. But we are still called to go. We are still called to go into uncomfortable situations. We are still called to proclaim the good news of Christ to a world that desperately needs some good news. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to go and serve. We're called to teach. We are called to obey. We're called to go. It's not complicated, Calvary. It's the shortest sentence in the English language. May the Lord give us strength to overcome our doubts, our fears, and our insecurities. May the Lord give us the strength to go. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, and loving God we serve. Amen.